so today's uh, message, thank goodness, you uh, can take a sigh of relief, is, is not a big kind of teaching message, it's another sort of story-based message, and uh, we go back to 2016 to start uh, the story today. This is me speaking at Promise Keepers. I've been speaking at Promise Keepers now, gosh, since I think 1999 was the first time that I spoke at Promise Keepers, uh, mostly doing the youth events at the beginning, and then eventually graduated uh, to uh, the, the main uh, meeting. Uh, these days, they've given up having the big meetings, uh, such has been the the story of Promise Keepers, but back in 2016, it was one of those years they kind of would have you speak in alternating years, and 2016 was my year. The event starts down in Christchurch as a kind of a warm-up event, so I went and spoke in Christchurch, and uh, after I'd spoken, somebody came up to me and said, could I give you a prophetic word, a stranger to me? Things like this uh, have happened to me from time to time, so I just smiled and said that that would be fine, and the person said, look, I just really feel like God wants to tell you that he's going to, you need to prepare yourself for a sort of a promotion into a leadership position of national influence. Well, I thought well, that's kind of interesting, and of course, you know, at that stage I was on Rima doing the breakfast show, and so these sorts of Nobody's going to come to me, you know, really, truly and give me a, a, a little kind of word. People want to give you sort of the grandiose words. You know, not and smile. That's interesting. Uh, so then I went and spoke in Wellington a few weeks later. And then after the message, a stranger came up to me and said, oh, could I give you a, this a prophetic word? I'm like, uh-huh. He says, yes, yeah, so the Lord's saying you need to prepare yourself for a promotion into a position of national influence. At which point I cocked my head and thought, well, okay, that's two events. And then when I got to Auckland... It happened a third time that a stranger came up to me and said, well, uh, the Lord says, prepare yourself for a position of national influence. And so I thought, well, there we go. That's three from three. God, you have certainly got my attention. At that point, uh, I thought I understood what the prophecies referred to. And I, I became convinced that there was a certain job that God had prepared for me and that this is what the prophecies referred to. And so I started praying and preparing for that job. And sure enough, the person who was doing that job then resigned. And I thought, my goodness, this is really happening. So I, you know, applied for the job. And then very surprisingly to me, didn't even get an interview. I remember when we got news uh, of the fact that I had been overlooked even for an interview, we were on holiday uh, in Golden Bay. And I remember getting the email, you know, that sort of classic email that says, you know, thank you for your application, but we won't be proceeding any further. At that point, in order to even consider taking on a new role, I had to be willing to put my role as pastor of a church sort of on the altar, as uh, Nate started today by talking about altars. I put that on the altar, had to put the radio show on the altar, and had to put my uh, counseling business, which I had started, on the altar. And I remember turning to Debbie and saying, well, I'm kind of confused because I didn't get this job, but those three things still seem to be on the altar. Now, Debs has a wonderful ability sometimes to be succinct and pithy in her summary of a situation and simply turned to me and said, that's because change is no longer optional. And I became aware that it was time for some kind of change. That summer holiday was a really terrible summer holiday. I'll tell you about it another time. Uh, but midway through the holiday, I became sort of you know, concerned about whether or not there was going to be any kind of change. And during that summer holiday, there was one night where Debs and our daughter Emily were watching some stupid zombie program, Walking Dead or something like that. 
And I hate shows like that. So I went on the internet and I typed in Christian Radio Australia and up came this job for the content director of Hope Media uh, in Sydney. And I thought, well, I'll apply for the job because having been in radio for 25 years, I'm bound to get an interview and I need the practice. So I applied for this job. Well, a few weeks later, I got this email from them saying, would you be willing to do a Skype interview? Now, I'm absolutely convinced that this is not a job I'm interested in, but then I go on to this Skype interview with these two gentlemen who are interviewing me from Sydney. Now, maybe the counsellor in me could tell I was doing pretty well, because I could see that they were talking to each other with their eyes, you know? They were kind of like, I like him, do you like him? I like him. You know, I could see that I was doing well. And so I asked this question, I said, if I advance to the next this, what's going to happen? They said, oh, well, we'll need you to fly to Sydney for an in-person interview the next week. Well, I don't know how it had happened, but for the first time in my adult life, I had let my passport expire. And so I rang Debbie to tell her, because, you know, of course, in her mind, this is just a practice interview, uh, and uh, now I'm pretty convinced they're going to ask me to go to Sydney. Well, I rang Deb's, no answer. She was down at West Wave with the kids. Well, I became determined that I would need to get the passport under urgency, and it was beginning of February, and so Waitangi Day was one of the days between you know, that day and the following weekend, so I really only had three or four working days to get a passport. So I paid the $300 for the emergency passport, went down the road to the pharmacy, got the photo taken. By the time I got back, I finally got hold of Debbie. She was in back and safe, and she screamed when I told her that I'd probably go into Sydney for an interview, and it wasn't the good kind of scream. It was not a good moment at all. Uh, she was like, what are you doing? I thought we weren't even interested in this job. So I went to Sydney and uh, the next weekend. And again, I interview well, unfortunately. Uh, you know, on reflection, a weakness for me is that I, I interview quite well. I'm confident, I'm articulate, and probably a bit much of both. Well, it took ages for them to get back to us, but you know, they finally said, we want you to come to Sydney. So we got ready to, uh, to pack up and go to Sydney. The church had uh, not just its final service for us, but its final service period. After 15 years, the church decided that at this particular juncture, it would prefer to close than to continue. So you can imagine after pouring 15 years of my life into the church, leaving uh, was fairly traumatic, but I never got to sort of really process that because we were busy packing our lives up. And when we arrived in Australia, our first Sunday was Easter. We went to Hillsong. Uh, Hillsong that day was having baptisms. I've never seen a church this size. Uh, their baptism service has these baptism pools open up under the stage at the front of the auditorium. And like 50 people, I'd say, got baptized that day. It, they were just going in and under and coming up the other side. And Debbie and I were crying like, yes, this is why we've come to Australia to help with the mission. And uh, started my job. And it seemed to be going pretty well. In fact, uh, one of the things you can see by the photo is that Debs and I found a really great uh, diet that really worked well, and I lost 20 kilos while I was there, and, and it's only confirmed that it was Auckland that was making me fat. Uh, this is the team uh, at Hope, and uh, after four months, the bosses said, well, you're doing great, but you're probably changing things a little bit fast, slow your roll, you know, but the things you want to change are the right things, but, you know, just slow down. By the eighth month, I was aware that things weren't going well. They had opted for a really flat structure. I had 18 direct reports. If you've ever been a manager, 18 is too many. 
And uh, as it happened, the guy I was replacing was beloved, and he'd gone up to the Brisbane station, and most people were very sad that he had gone, and they just frankly didn't want a replacement guy. And so by the eight-month mark, of course, I'd worked out that some of the team really liked me, but some of them did not. And I was gravitating more and more to the group that liked me and trying to avoid the ones that didn't. Well, they sat me down at the eight-month mark, and they said, well, look, you've got four teams at the moment. Next year, we want to add a fifth team to this role, but you're not coping with the four teams. So they sent me home, and I never came back again. I'd like to tell you more about what happened that day, but I can't. They forced me to sign a non-disclosure agreement, uh, which I will say this, is that that uh, NDA exists to protect them, not me. But we came home. We figured, come back to New Zealand, that's where I'm known. Surely that's where I will find opportunity. Nobody in Sydney knows me, so we came back home. I now realise that that sign should say, welcome to Auckland, enjoy your delay. Because what was about to unfold was a terrible year of my life. Uh, I mean, just to kind of summarize it, uh, there was the discovery of my dad's kidney cancer, and then we discovered there were mental illness and drug addiction issues in our family. I applied for 150 jobs. I swear if I ever read the words, we've had a high caliber of applicants. Ever again, I will lose my mind. And there was some family conflict that was really unbearable. Look, and, and to summarize what a crazy year it was, in July of that year was the uh, soccer World Cup, the football World Cup. And I'd woken up in the middle of the night uh, with a bit of a cough and had remembered it was the night of the grand final. And I hadn't watched any of the football World Cup, but I thought, oh, I'll get up and I'll watch this game. And I'm sitting there at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, in, in our house on Swanson Road, and I hear this bang, 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 bang. What on earth is that? And so I turned the TV down. Bang, 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 bang. I'm like, what on earth? So I went to the front of the window, peeled back uh, the curtain to see some woman in a hoodie bashing up our cars with a hockey stick. Uh, so, of course, you know, I had to pick up the phone and ring the police. Good thing about West Aucklanders, the police are always close by. And so they arrived while I was still on the phone, and it turned out that this lady was having some kind of psychotic break, and she had attacked both our cars. And two days later, Debbie comes up to me in the morning and says, Honey, last night something happened to your car. And I'm like, well, that was a few nights ago with the lady in the hockey stick. She says, No, something else. It turned out that somebody was driving down the road at 3 o'clock in the morning and uh, their cell phone had slipped off their passenger seat so they'd lifted, leant down to grab their cell phone and by the time they came upright, they had crossed the median line and smashed into my car. This was the kind of year I was having, folks. 317 days of unemployment. Or as if Scott Fitzgerald calls it the dark night of the soul where it's always 3 o'clock in the morning day after day. I would go down to Cafe, Cafe Corridor in uh, Ranui for a, a cup of coffee most mornings and to read my Bible. Uh, and, and one particular morning I, I went down and, and read what was just something that just completely floored me from the Psalms because I had started to wonder if uh, somehow God had forgotten me, whether he'd lost me along the way, whether somewhere between Sydney and Auckland God had lost me. And then I read this in Psalm 56, that you number my wanderings and you put uh, my tears in your bottle. 
I remember sitting there in the cafe just crying because I had felt like God had forgotten me. He'd lost me, but he was numbering my wanderings. I discovered at that point something I knew kind of theologically to be true, that about a third of the Psalms are referred to as Psalms of lament. There are personal laments, there are corporate laments, and about a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. So I started reading them, and for the first time I saw lots of phrases that I realized if you tell other Christians these phrases, they think that you're not much of a Christian. But there they are right in the Bible. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Say these things to Christians. They're like, he is not a very good Christian. But they're right in the Bible. My God, I cry out day by day, but do not answer by night and find no rest. I'm forgotten as though I were dead. Man, I was so grateful for these Psalms. Because they told me that my suffering and my pain was as welcome as my praise. I remember at one point we uh, went looking for churches and we got tired of looking. So we went to Church Unlimited, uh, which is not my normal kind of style of church. But the worship leader there, I told him my story and he said the most beautiful thing. He said, Aaron, if you just want to come on Sunday and stand at the back and swear, you're allowed. I'm like, that's a man who gets what I'm going through. It was funny because during that time, I'd often go to church more often than normal. But it was always with that same kind of attitude. I'd be kind of rocking up to church going, well, God, here I am again. What you got for me? But it didn't seem like he had anything. And some of my Christian friends, you know, they offered me, uh, you know, the best consolation they could have. But some of them said stuff that just frankly wasn't helpful. I mean, one of my friends, you know, he would just say, you know what you need to do? You just need to sing Hallelujah. You just need to sing hallelujah. I'm like getting punchy. You see, I realize that, you know, hallelujah is a song you sing when things are going well. But it was verses like this from Psalm 137 that now made more sense to me. Here's Israel in exile, being taken away from their land that God had promised them, far away from the temple, and their captors start taunting them by the rivers of Babylon. You know, when I think of that song from the 80s, it's far too upbeat for the reality. Because the rest of the verses, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, which is a tree, we hung our harps. And I realized that was me. I'd hung my harp. I, I remember my guitar sat in my room, and I just looked at it, never wanted to touch it. There our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. Did you read that? When you're going through dark times, and you tell someone just to sing hallelujah, you're a tormentor asking them to sing a song of joy when they can't. It's just not in you. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? You know, I had this experience in Sydney that helped kind of capture this for me. This is my friend Henry and his son Benji, and we went out to Pepper Stadium to watch Penrith play the Warriors. The Warriors were having a good game. Penrith are now champs, but back then they were on a losing streak like you would not believe. It was 24-6 at halftime. The Penrith crowd are booing their own team. We're kind of looking up to other people around us going, look, just give us this. We're Warriors fans, would you? Now, I don't know what happened at halftime, but two different teams came out after halftime and Penrith blew the Warriors off the park. 
At which point Henry and Benji and I sort of slunked uh, our heads and, and, and slinked out of the, the stadium. And then we heard something I'd never heard before. You see, I'd never been to an away game. When they win, they play the club song. And everybody sings the club song, a stadium full of people. Imagine if they'd sung that song at halftime. It would have made no sense at all. You sing hallelujah when it's going well, the laments are for when it's not going so well. Some friends, though, were much better. Last time I was talking, I told you about my friend Siusi. And Siusi, he was, he was just wonderful during this period of my life. He would ring me up. He'd say, bro, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing. He goes, oh, come for some kai. I'm like, okay. He goes, I'm sitting outside. And so I find him sitting in a car outside my house. And he would take me out for, for, you know, for some food. And I would say to him things like, I just don't even want to talk about this situation. I am sick to death of this story. I just hate the fact that my only story is just such a dark, painful story that just won't go away. And he would just look over the table and say, I love you. And I realized that that was what I needed in that moment. What I needed was some empathy not some education, not some advice. You know, people continue to try and offer me prophetic words. Do you know, during that year, I heard all of the available options. I heard, God has definitely got your job. I heard, God is saying, wait. I heard, God is saying, there's no job for you right now. I'm like, oh, good, that's all three bases covered. How about you just shut up right about now? Because I need empathy right now. I don't need education. I just need someone to tell me I'm not alone in all of this. I realize it was very tempting to see this as a sort of life-defining moment. And certainly many times I talked about it like it was. Like it was the only thing that had ever happened to Aaron. But it took me a while to realize that what had happened in Sydney was a blip on the radar. Nothing like this had ever happened in my life before. I'd never failed like this. I'd never had any setback like this. This wasn't my story. It was just one of the chapters. It was not defining. And then the Psalms gave me advice again on what to do. You see, if you can't look forward because the future looks bleak, the future looks dark. You see, when I was deep into that unemployment, I couldn't look forward anymore. You know, I'd, I'd have counseling and the counselor would say, you know, what do you, you know, see in the future for yourself? I'm like, static, darkness, nothing. Well, if you can't look forward, look back. If you can't look forward, look back. So I did. I remembered the deeds of the Lord. I remembered the miracles he had done in my life because I couldn't look forward anymore, so I had to look back. So I reflected on those 15 years uh, leading Harvest where we baptized 117 new believers, where we planted four churches. And, and something we didn't see until the church had ended, that over 30 people had gone into full-time Christian work for the first time in their life. And I remembered. And remembering started to change my view of the future. If you can't look forward, friends, look back. I had to settle a question I realize too often in our Christian life, we have these little tests set up for whether God loves us or not. Sometimes we look at our bank balance to work it out. Sometimes we look at our CV. Certainly, I was very tempted to. 
But I realized that I could not work out if God loved me based on my circumstances, based on whether or not the job had come my way. I had to remember that God's love was a settled issue that God had already demonstrated his love for me, that whilst I was a sinner, Christ had died for me. This was settled. I needed to settle that. I learned this one the hard way. I had to realize that uh, God was holding me. You see, oftentimes when we think about our faith, we think about how well we're doing, right? Right? Do I pray enough? Do I read my Bible enough? Do I do enough? As if we are the one holding up the relationship. But you see, I got to a point where I would go to the bucket of prayer, the well of prayer, the well of faith, and it was empty. I realized I had nothing left. That I couldn't believe. That I couldn't trust. That I couldn't do any of it anymore. But it was at that moment I found that God was holding me. But I couldn't hold on anymore. And it changed things because I realized that he wouldn't let go of me. During this time, uh, we were living in the front house. If you've ever visited a house on Swanson Road, we were living in the front house, an old 60s house. But we were building a, a house on the back we thought we would live in. And for a long time, I just had told us that we could never afford to live in the new house, that somebody else would have to live in the new house, we'd stay in the front house. But as we got closer to it being completed, I realized, well, somehow, we keep paying the mortgage on the front house and the growing mortgage on the back house. Well, maybe we can do this. Maybe we should move in. And so we decided that we would move into the new house. And it was right at that time that I sent my CV to a Christian ministry in South Auckland that I'd never encountered before called Tafaka Oratangata. And uh, they did what I had expected would happen when we first got back home. Apparently, the CEO walked out of his office with my CV in his hand and said, you won't believe who God is sending us. They met with me just once at uh, Monte Cecilia Cafe in Hillsborough and offered me a job the next day. I became their communications and fundraising manager. Part of that was that they told me I had to come and do their course, which they take a whole bunch of families, Māori and Pacific families, through called the Family Restoration Course. This is who they work with. And it's a pretty different kind of crowd. When I rocked up to do this course, I'm sitting at the back of the room and I'm the only person who looks like me and some people have some fancy jewellery on their ankle and uh, I realise I'm out of my place. <laughs> they introduced me, they said, hey everybody, this is Aaron, he's our new team member, he's not a cop. And so I said, well, I'm kind of too fat to be a cop, so. They'd said to me, on day five of the course, everybody will get saved. I'm like, no, I've been a Christian a long time. There is no room where everybody gets saved. Well, they did this very clever thing. On week four, they talk about the love languages, and they finish week four by saying, if the love languages are not working for you, come back next week, and we'll tell you about a love language that never fails. So the next week they present the gospel as the love language that never fails and they make this appeal for people to come forward and receive Jesus and the whole room just stood as one, just as advertised. One of the men who was there that day who shared his testimony is Rob Brown. Rob used to be the enforcer for the mongrel mob. 
uh, he, uh, when he was in jail, he uh, went up to the head of the mongrel mob and said, uh, how do I get involved in this? And the leader said, well, you need to stab that man. And so by the end of lunchtime, he'd stabbed him. But Rob went on the course, and incredibly, uh, after he had done the course, they have this sort of prayer time with people where they go through your entire story, but they did his one at his house, and they prayed for him. He started coughing and spluttering. So he went to the bathroom, uh, and then he realized, maybe it's the prayer that's making me cough and splutter. So he went back. He said, maybe you guys should finish praying for me. So they continued praying for him, at which point Rob promptly threw up. That's why they had the green demon bucket in the room uh, at work, because this happened quite a lot. But he didn't uh, throw up kind of normal stuff. He threw up a cup of blood. And in that moment, a 30-year drug addiction was broken from his life. And he was a completely changed and transformed man. Uh, the mongrel mob wouldn't let him leave. He knew too much, so they made him the chaplain. Rob uh, has a lawn mowing business these days, and he was our lawn mower for a little while, but I did laugh the first day he came to do our lawns. I said to my daughter, the new lawnmower man is coming, and you're going to pack yourself when you see him. But he's lovely. But I realized that that job wasn't for me. I wanted to be closer to the action. I wanted to be working with people. So I'd started the counseling business again, and then I found this job down at the Port of Auckland where I was doing chaplaincy. And then COVID struck in 2020, and I became aware that I was going to lose my job. And sure enough, the English office that were funding the role said, we're not going to be able to fund it any further. Well, it had happened again. I flipped and lost another job. So I text my friends to tell them what had happened. And they had been encouraging enough in their response to me that I thought, well, maybe I should text some other people who might know of some work. So I sent some more texts out. One of those people was Bob McCostry of Family First. And Bob wrote back, what do you think about cannabis reform? I said, well, I used to be a cannabis user. Cannabis is nasty. I don't think cannabis should be legalized. He said, well, what do you think about becoming the spokesperson for the Say Nope to Dope campaign? He goes, well, what will it involve? He says, well, the media don't call me anymore, so they probably won't even call you. You just, you know, occasionally you might be asked to speak to a, a radio program or a newspaper, but it won't be much. Well, for the next six months, Bob was wrong. I spent my days from the moment I was waking to the moment I was asleep uh, advocating for the no position in the cannabis referendum, speaking to the New York Times one moment and then flying to national debates somewhere else in the country in other moments. And this was the most intense six months of my life. I don't know if you know, but we won in the end. But it wasn't until it was all over that I stood back and thought, oh, a leadership position with national influence. The very thing that I'd given up on, the very thing that I figured was not true, God had found a way. You see, this is what was incredible. As I look back over those months, and I realized that God's pathway to that promise, I could never have anticipated. To go to Sydney and to fail, to come home and to be unemployed for the better part of a year, to do a job that wasn't my job, to end up in the port where they never did make me redundant, I still am today. And somehow God found his way of getting me where he needed to get me.
I wonder where you are today. I wonder if you're in the dark night of the soul or whether you're remembering yours. I wonder if you're ready for a time of suffering. I wonder if you know that it's okay to bring your pain to God. I wonder if you can trust God with the promise, the prophecy, the hope that's in your heart for something that you are wanting and believing for today. And to trust that God is the one who can get you where you need to go. Let's pray today. Father, we thank you that you are the one that knows the end from the beginning. That from outside of time and space you see our lives. You see your purposes unfolding. And God, we are grateful that you have a perspective like no other. Lord, help us. Help us to be those who can walk through the valley knowing that you will hold us in the moments that we can't hold on anymore. Help us, Lord, to be those who would treasure up those promises, those hopes, those words in our heart, trusting that you are the one who will bring them to pass in your time and in your way. And Lord, I pray today that we would realize that you want us to bring all of ourselves to you. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the ugly stuff is all welcome at the throne of grace. So let's stand together and let's worship God, the one who calls us to himself, the one who is faithful when we are faithless. Let's worship him this morning. Amen.